Murder in the North, Episode 2, Kazuko, The Nameless Corpse in the Harbor. When police are successful at bringing a killer to justice, it often raises another question. Did this person kill before? In the late 1980s, the dismembered body of a young woman was found in Copenhagen. It takes the police almost a year just to find out who she is, so the murderer is always on the front foot. Years turn into decades, and nobody is ever convicted of the crime. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Steen Engreen and Barbara Gerhulf-Nielholm, and told by me, Jenna Sharp. There's no statute of limitations for murder. Even after investigators have exhausted all possible avenues, the file is never completely closed. It may be decades, and often in a completely different case, before a perpetrator leaves evidence that enables the police to slot the missing piece of the puzzle into place and finally solve a cold case. It can be a fingerprint, DNA, or simply the way in which the murder was carried out. In the autumn of 2017, the world looked on in horror as police in Copenhagen slowly uncovered the truth about the killing of Swedish journalist Kim Wall. The perpetrator, an eccentric inventor by the name of Peter Madsen, has built his very own submarine. When Kim Wall went to interview Madsen, he invited her on board the submersible to take her for a spin. She never returned to shore. Madsen tried to hide his crime by cutting up his victim and dumping her body parts into the sea. As the shocked headlines put it, we've never seen a murder like it in Denmark. Yet, 30 years earlier, a police unit in Copenhagen had tried to solve a similar case. It all kicked off on Friday morning, on the 31st of October 1986, when the emergency services received a phone call from a cab driver. Floating in the water just off Eslandsbrug was the dismembered torso of a woman. The police initially think they're dealing with an accident or suicide. If a person were to jump or fall into the water and come into contact with one of the big ships passing through the harbour, it's not unthinkable for a propeller to mutilate the body in this way. It wouldn't be the first time. But the very next day, two young people in Christianshavn, also in the harbour area, 
find a black plastic bag containing the naked torso of a woman. Her head is missing. Forensic pathologists soon establish that the torso is that of a teenage girl and that the two discoveries in the harbour are connected. The girl had clearly been a victim of foul play. Those body parts didn't get into a carrier bag by themselves. Detectives make an appeal for witnesses and also open up all recent missing persons reports in the hope of identifying the dead girl. Meanwhile, divers search for more body parts in the harbour. The incident also attracts the attention of Swedish forensic investigators. They arrive in Copenhagen to probe whether this case could be linked to the unsolved murder of Katrine de Costa, a 28-year-old sex worker whose dismembered body was found north of Stockholm two years previously. Not long after, a dog walker finds one of the dead woman's legs near Islandsbrug, not far from where the cab driver had spotted the torso in the water four days earlier. The police need more information to identify the dead woman. Without evidence, or even a crime scene, they need to find out the victim's identity for the investigation to progress. Her circumstances, relationships, lifestyle and habits are all crucial in the hunt for the killer. A few days later, when an eagle-eyed passerby spots a black bag in the harbour, hopes are raised for a breakthrough in the case. But the new discovery proves to be disappointing. The plastic bag contains a guinea pig after a child living nearby had given their pet a burial at sea. But then, when divers take a closer look at the site, they spot something dark floating in the water below them. There, on the seabed, lies the dead woman's head, her long black hair swaying in the current. Not long after, a dog walker finds one of the dead woman's legs washed up on Islandsbrug. Forensic investigators determine that the body parts must have been in the water for several weeks, which significantly hampers their work. Nonetheless, they manage to gather additional information that may help the police make a positive identification. The woman turns out to be a bit older than initially thought. She's probably in her early 20s, certainly not a teenager. The cause of death is believed to be strangulation. No traces of drugs or other toxins are found in her blood. And aside from the dismemberment, there are no further signs of violence on her body. By studying the cuts, investigators are able to tell that the perpetrator had no surgical or other anatomical knowledge. They can also rule out the theory that this victim was killed by the same person who killed the sex worker in Stockholm two years earlier. The anonymous woman's fingerprints yield nothing. But there's hope that her distinctive teeth especially her prominent incisors, can provide a clue to her identity. Forensic dentists find evidence of dental treatment, so there must be a patient file with x-rays somewhere. An appeal goes out to all Danish dentists, but no luck. 
The dead woman remains nameless, her killer unknown. Six months previously, in May 1986, Kazuko Toyonaga waves goodbye to her family, who live in a Tokyo suburb. She gets on a bus to Narita Airport, and together with five other young women, she flies to the former West Germany. The women plan to spend the summer in Freiburg, where they'll take part in a series of clinical trials for a new Japanese contraceptive pill. At this time, the pill is illegal in Japan, which is why Japanese pharmaceutical companies working on contraceptives are forced to go elsewhere for research and development. The study is well paid for participants, and it gives Kazuko the chance to travel and see something of the world. She'll spend four months in Freiburg and then travel around Europe on her own. She hasn't told her family the real reason for her stay in Germany. Her parents aren't rich, but they've somehow managed to set aside some money to help their daughter realize her dream to travel. Kazuko is 22, a conscientious, quiet young woman with a boyfriend who's two years older. They've been together for three years and plan to marry soon. Kazuko's boyfriend is the only one who knows that she's going to be a human guinea pig in a clinical trial in Germany. And he's not happy about it. Far from it, in fact. But he knows Kazuko well enough to realize that when she gets something in her head, she'll go through with it. Summer's just around the corner when, in May, the small group of Japanese women arrives in Freiburg. Kazuko is fascinated by the scientific aspects of the research and reads up on the chemical workings of the drug being tested. She's never been much of a social animal, more of an introvert, and so she doesn't really bond with the rest of the trial group. Kazuko tends to keep herself to herself. But she makes the most of the beautiful surroundings, going for walks in the hills around Freiburg and into the dense forests and the wide river valleys close to the border with France. She also writes lots of letters to her family and her boyfriend in Tokyo. She feels homesick from time to time, and things go from bad to worse when she falls ill during the trial. The doctors take blood samples up to eight or ten times a day, she writes to her boyfriend. Sometimes they just leave the needle in. At one point, I came down with a fever, and they couldn't work out what was wrong. When I fell ill, I kept thinking, I wish I could go home, back to Japan. Kazuko's boyfriend is worried. He'd never been keen on her being involved in the development of a pill that isn't even legal in Japan. The fact that now she's feeling poorly on the other side of the globe only makes it worse for him. That's why he's thrilled when, in August, he has the opportunity to travel to Freiburg to visit Kazuko. They've not seen each other for three months, but they're more in love and more determined to get married than ever. Kazuko's boyfriend is relieved that the tests are nearly over and that she seems to be feeling much better. But she's still intent on seeing more of Europe when the trial comes to an end in mid-September. Adding up her parents' money 
and the fee for taking part in the trial, Kazuko has been able to save 8,000 German marks, roughly £3,500 in today's money. On the 16th of September, she says goodbye to the doctors, the research staff, and the other Japanese women. With a European interrail pass in her pocket and a youth hostel membership for cheap accommodation, she sets off on her travels. Her passport, money, and tickets hang in a small pouch round her neck, and packed in her rucksack, her clothes, a sponge bag, a radio, a camera, and a rolled-up sleeping bag. Kazuko travels first to Italy, and then to the Netherlands, where on the 26th of September, she boards the so-called Northwest Express from Amsterdam to Scandinavia. On Saturday morning, she arrives in Copenhagen. She spends the day sightseeing before hopping on the night train to Stockholm. She sees the Little Mermaid statue in Denmark. She writes to her parents from the train. She spends the Sunday in the Swedish capital, where she sleeps in a youth hostel, before continuing her journey to Oslo. From there, she returns to Stockholm to catch a ferry to Helsinki. By the time she gets to Finland, autumn is drawing to an end, with temperatures dropping close to freezing. Kazuko buys a fur coat for nearly 1,800 German marks, 800 pounds, and sits down on a park bench to write a letter to her loved one. Arrived in Helsinki on the Sphere Line, just went to a market where I bought a few things, she writes. It's Saturday the 4th of October 1986. Within the space of three weeks, Kazuko has crisscrossed much of Europe and she's excited about all the other destinations she's planning to visit. This is the last letter Kazuko's boyfriend ever receives from her. The Scandinavian capital cities that Kazuko visits during her trip are usually known for being so peaceful. But here in 1986, they are experiencing an unusually violent year. Sweden is still in shock after the assassination of Prime Minister Olaf Palmer, who was gunned down in a Stockholm street in February that year. When Kazuko arrives in Copenhagen, the area around Rysgade a street in the Nerebro district, resembles a battlefield. Throughout September, police efforts to clear a squat have sparked riots and other violence. For the third year running, Denmark is in the grip of a freezing winter. And just before Christmas, investigators' hopes of making some progress in the case of the murdered woman in the harbour have also dropped to zero. The police turn to the public for help. They make an appeal to speak to anyone who may have seen an Asian woman of slim build with long black hair aged between 20 to 30 years old. The response to the appeal is underwhelming, and none of the tips bring the detectives closer to a name. Six weeks after the body parts were first found, the police investigation has hit a dead end. Dentists up and down the country are again urged to check their records for the unknown woman's distinctive teeth. 
Interpol issues a description to police forces across Europe and the rest of the world. All to no avail. Time ticks on. 1986 turns to 1987. And then, in mid-February, the Copenhagen police are confronted with another brutal killing. 73-year-old Edith Andrup is found dead in her house in Wolbu. Whoever killed her tried to set the flat ablaze after the murder, but failed. It enables the police to secure one useful piece of evidence. The shoe print of a popular men's Adidas trainer. This print will haunt the Danish public for decades to come. It takes nearly 25 years before the culprit is finally convicted, not for the killing of Edith Andrup, but for a series of violent rapes and other murders. Nicknamed Amaeerman after the Copenhagen district of Amaeer, the killer is one of only a handful of serial killers in the history of Danish crime. He's eventually arrested in 2010 and sentenced to life imprisonment a year later. But the murder of Edith Andrup doesn't shed any new light on the unsolved case of the anonymous woman in the harbour. Let's go back to the winter of 1987, to Tokyo, where the Toyonagas are beginning to grow extremely worried. Kazuko's birthday on the 15th of January comes and goes, and still the family hasn't been able to contact her to wish her many happy returns. Neither Kazuko's parents nor her boyfriend have heard from her since that last letter she wrote in early October from a park bench in Helsinki. For a long time, they try to downplay their concerns. They try to reassure themselves. Kazuko must be so caught up in her European adventures that she simply doesn't get around to calling or writing. And in an era before the internet and mobile phones, there's nothing they can really do but wait. March sees the beginning of cherry blossom season in Japan. Once again, the Toyonagas are forced to celebrate without word from their eldest daughter. Kazuko's parents have now reported her missing. Her boyfriend, meanwhile, is looking for her in his own way. With the help of her letters, he's able to reconstruct much of her route after leaving Freiburg. He writes to the hostels she stayed at, asking if anyone has seen her. The many responses he receives are all the same. No. Nobody remembers a Japanese woman travelling on her own with just a rucksack for company. Soon, it's the month of May 1987, a year since Kazuko boarded a plane to West Germany. Still, there's no sign of her. Japanese police are slowly beginning to share details about the missing woman with European authorities. And in June, information about the case reaches their Danish counterparts. It's not long before similarities are found between Kazuko Toyonaga from Japan and the as-yet-unidentified victim from the harbour. The deceased's fingerprints are dispatched to Tokyo, 
while Japanese colleagues send transcripts of their interview with the Kazuko family to Denmark. Finally, a breakthrough in a case that has seen no progress whatsoever for six months. Kazuko's itinerary across Europe can be reconstructed through her correspondence. In a letter to her boyfriend, she wrote about having a terrible toothache and having to go see a dentist in Freiburg. With the help of the West German police, the dentist in question is traced. The medical records and x-rays can now be compared with the findings of the forensic dentists in Copenhagen. Police in Tokyo take fingerprints of items belonging to Kazuko to see if they match the prints from Denmark. On the 2nd of July 1987, nine months after the body parts were first found in Copenhagen Harbour, the team of investigators finally have answers to two of their many questions. The Department of Odontology at the University of Copenhagen confirms that the patient in Freiburg is the woman in the harbour. At that same time, a telegram arrives from Tokyo confirming that the fingerprints of the corpse are a 100% match with those of the missing Kazuko Toyonaga. Once the police confirm with Kazuko's family that the handwriting is definitely their daughter's, her many handwritten letters are translated. It gives the Danish investigators a detailed overview of her long trip around Europe. Two detectives are sent to Freiburg, where they join German colleagues in interviewing everybody who may have met Kazuko during her stay. And just as Kazuko's boyfriend had done earlier, the police now contact all hostels in the cities that Kazuko visited. In the end, there's only one positive identification. Staff at Zinken Youth Hostel in Stockholm recognize Kazuko from a photo. In late September 1986, she'd stayed the night in a shared room for women. But since there are very few backpackers in the city at that time of year, she'd had a room with four beds all to herself. It's the last reported sighting of Kazuko. Nobody knows how or when she travelled from Finland to Denmark. The letter she'd written in the park in Helsinki is dated the 4th of October. Four weeks after that, on October the 31st, the first of her body parts was spotted in the water by the Copenhagen cab driver. During the post-mortem on her body, coroners determined that the woman must have been in the water for several weeks. They assumed she'd spent only a few days in Copenhagen before she met her killer, most probably sometime between October the 8th and 15th. Kazuko Toyinaga didn't check into any youth hostels or other accommodation in or around the Danish capital. Kazuko's family and those who knew her in Freiburg described her as a shy and reserved person so it's extremely improbable that she would have stayed with a stranger. It seems more likely that the perpetrator met and killed her shortly after she'd arrived in Copenhagen. But until a crime scene is established, 
Investigators can't rule out the theory that the offence took place somewhere else, and the murderer dumped the remains in Copenhagen to cover his tracks. Either way, somebody must have seen Kazuko, the police are convinced. So they appealed to the public again. It was the off-season. She was a petite Japanese woman. Somebody must have noticed her. So thinks Commissioner Volmer Peterson, head of the serious crime unit of the Copenhagen police force. He's optimistic. With all this new information, there's renewed hope that the case can still be solved, even after six months. There's another unanswered question. What happened to Kazuko's belongings? She was found naked in the harbour. So what happened to her burgundy rucksack, her passport and purse, and the fur coat she bought during her trip? The investigators are particularly interested in her red camera. It's unusual, and therefore quite conspicuous. Not least because of this specific model, a Konica Tomato Autodate, of which only 24 had been sold across the whole of Denmark. What happened to all these things? Were they disposed of, found, stolen, or sold? The police now direct their attention towards finding witnesses who might have seen, bought, or traded Kazuko's possessions. They promise immunity from prosecution if any thieves or sellers of stolen goods come forward with information that would help hunt down the killer. But this appeal yields no results either. No new tips come in, and there's no trace of Kazuko's belongings. It's as if the woman who always kept herself to herself had been invisible. As if she never really visited all those cities she wrote about in her many letters. All the new leads have come to nothing, and after months of investigation, the police are back to square one. Although the victim has been identified and her itinerary painstakingly reconstructed, there are still so many questions. Where and when and especially why was Kazuko murdered? And the most important question of all? Who? Who was the killer? That crucial question remains unanswered. Kazuko's boyfriend travels to Europe to bring her remains back to Japan, accompanied by her father and sister. She's not going home for her wedding as planned, but for her funeral. All avenues have been exhausted. The team of investigators see no alternative but to put the case on hold until, at some point in the future perhaps, a new piece of evidence comes to light. Thirty years later, on the 21st of August 2017, a walker finds the torso of a woman off the coast of Amaur. At that moment, the Swedish journalist Kim Wall has been missing for 11 days. She disappeared after boarding a homemade submarine in the harbour of Copenhagen to interview its captain and builder, Peter Madsen. Kim Wall's boyfriend immediately raises the alarm when she doesn't return from the submarine trip. And suspicions soon point to the eccentric captain. 
Although he denies killing Kim Wall, he's already in custody by the time the young woman's upper body is found. It doesn't take forensic investigators long to determine that the torso belongs to the missing journalist. And in the months that follow, the police, assisted by their Swedish colleagues and the army, systematically search Ko Bay. One by one, every single part of Kim Wall's dismembered body is retrieved from the sea. And the crime receives widespread media attention both at home and abroad. At one of the press conferences about the case, Jens Müller, chief of Copenhagen Police's serious crime unit, is asked whether the suspect can be linked to other, as yet unsolved, murders. He answers, Of course, we always check for possible connections with cold cases. There's one dating back to 1987, when the torso of a Japanese tourist was found in the harbour. We'll be reopening that case. Like every twist in the bizarre submarine murder case, this news quickly spreads around the world. Media speculation is rife. A few weeks later, a Japanese news crew interviews Copenhagen's chief of police and asks whether Kazuko Toyonaga's killer has finally been caught. The police, however, refute all the theories doing the rounds. It may be true that within the space of 30 years, and in very similar ways, two young foreign women have been murdered, dismembered, and thrown into the waters off Copenhagen. But there's no proof that the two cases are linked. In 1986, the year that Kazuko Toyonaga was murdered, Kim Wall's killer was only 15 years old. In 2018, Peter Madsen, was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Kim Wall. The murder of Kazuko has never been solved. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. Podcasts.